1: A woman named Deborah Manning lost her life in a gruesome murder. Her nude body was found in a ditch with some 30 wounds, most of them stab wounds. She fought her attacker, or attackers. The Debbie Manning case is one we would highlight now and then when I worked for the Southeast Missourian newspaper, but it was a case that just didn't seem to have a lot of leads. Reporters would contact family members or family members would contact the newspaper, and then we would contact the authorities and get comments and so forth. But those stories were more to put out the word to remind people of this cold murder case. This was pretty standard reporting for cold cases like this. No new leads ever came in, and in this case, no news was bad news. And there hasn't been anything new reported in this case for a long, long time. In this episode of The Lawless Files, we're going to interview a journalist who has taken a much deeper dive into the Debbie Manning murder, who has uncovered new information, and had the rare opportunity to examine the case file of an ongoing, open investigation. This journalist's name is Reagan Ernst. Reagan is a graduate of Southeast Missouri State University who majored in film and TV She's just a couple of years out of college, but her work on this case demonstrates professional maturity well beyond her years of experience. Reagan is the director and editor of a new documentary-style project on the Debbie Manning case. It's called The Local Whisper. The first episode of the documentary comes out this Friday, October 21st. She's releasing it as an independent project on YouTube, but let me tell you, these episodes are very skillfully and artfully done, In that way it's as good as shows you'll see on Netflix. Southeast Missouri State University should be proud of the work this alum has done. Reagan is now working as a producer for a television show in Wisconsin. In the background, another person has been working tirelessly on the Manning case, and that's Justin Burns, who has a podcast called Crime Talk Radio, which has highlighted several local cases. The Manning case is especially intriguing to him as he grew up in that general area. He's already put out an episode on the Manning case, and I encourage you to go check it out. He continues to work on the case as well. Debbie Manning was murdered very close to the Scott County and Cape Girardeau County line. It's a case that was botched from the beginning. The sheriff at the time didn't use all of his tools at his disposal, and the murder was just never solved. We don't even know where she was the night of the murder, Several claims that she was at a specific bar before she went missing may or may not be credible. Evidence wasn't very well kept either. The local whisper is set to come out this week, so I wanted to interview Reagan and ask her not only about the Manning case, but also some behind the scenes things regarding her work. Reagan is a bright young talent, and I want to encourage everyone to check out the documentary when it's released. Reagan puts an emphasis on being respectful of this crime and the family of the victim. Her style is one that avoids sensationalism and simply tells the story. My fingers are crossed, and I know hers are too, that her work, along with Justin's, will help lead to new evidence and charges in this 1983 cold murder case. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files.
0: Instead of just being like you know it's 40 years old let them do their thing it'll pass he was he reached out to me back in may i believe and did something i was not expecting at all he he called and said look i know you have information that that could be useful and could get answers if you share that with us you can come down for one week 5 days and have access to eight detectives and they can go and follow any lead that you bring forward.
1: Okay, Reagan, thank you so much for joining us here on the The Lawless Files. We're excited to have you on. You've you've undergone a huge project here. I know you've had to work on it a long time. I've watched the first two episodes. It's it's very well done. Um, how long have you spent on this project so far?
0: Thank you um, for the whole project. I it's probably been about two years um, for me uh, for this case specifically, uh, a little over a year and a half.
1: You graduated a couple of years ago from Semo, right? So that you've been working on this project, I guess you know since you've been out of out of college. Um, what drew you to this particular case? We'll get into the case here in a minute, but what drew you to it? Uh, How'd you find out about it? What, you know, how'd you get started on it?
0: Yeah, um, I, like you said, I went to SEMO. To so I kind of knew that area a little bit. And I kind of knew for the first episode, we would want to start in Cape Girardeau. And one of, this is one of, I would say, four major cold cases within Cape Girardeau. So this one stood out to me because of our, our mission statement, um, the local whispers mission statement kind of centers around cases that weren't given a lot of media attention. In this case in particular, I felt it was given certain pieces, but it was very, not very descriptive, not very detailed. It it never really felt like it, anyone took the time to really deep dive into it. And so that one kind of stood out to us and, and after justin burns released his podcast on it we we were excited someone was talking about it so we were able to get in contact with him and from there it just snowballed
1: okay great i wanted to bring justin up at some point uh in this interview so i'm glad you've already done that um but let's let's talk a little bit about uh let's just jump into the case this is a a murder that took place on july 4th 1983. And we, we've got a, a woman that's found on the side of the road. I'm gonna let you kind of take it because you've spent so much time on this case. Um, I I mean I I have watched the the um the episodes, but I've also um, I'm familiar with this case having formerly worked at the Southeast Missourian. So I, I know some of the basics of the case, but I'm gonna let you kind of lay the scene of of how how this crime starts and and the the discovery that kicks kicks it all off.
0: So this case was July 4th, 1983, um, July 4th to July 5th. It was. It's on obviously Deborah Manning. That night she was at her parents' house for fireworks. And around 10, 10.30, she left her parents' residence, was walking home. And that was the last time she was seen alive. And at around 12 to 1230, she was found um, on County Road 249 between Cape Girardeau and about Chaffee Delta area. Yeah, it's um, right
1: near the uh, county line there, isn't it?
0: Yes. Yeah, it's right on the county line, which is why Scott County Police Force called first. And then they realized that it was actually Cape Girardeau Police Department. So they had some jurisdictional issues kind of at the beginning and from there it was was kept with Cape Girardeau County and was not given to major crimes um sheriff bob gribbler uh, he chose not to initiate major crimes which at the time was controversial as well yeah, um, the,
1: the the major case squad is what you're referring to there right
0: major case squad yeah
1: yeah so major um, major case squad uh, I think it'd been like created, but it hadn't been activated at that point. Again, this is that 19- would have been
0: its first case. Yeah, it would
1: have been the first case. And everybody's kind of kicking themselves now that they
0: didn't enact it.
1: But um,
0: yeah, easy to look back and say, like, why didn't you do that? Um yeah. but it was the first time, it would have been the first case. Uh definitely should have been given to the major case squad, uh, but unfortunately it hasn't. And uh and he he took it on with with his team there.
1: So Debbie Manning Deborah Manning, she was found, I guess in a ditch with uh, up to 30 stab wounds. Can you can you tell us a little bit about uh how she was discovered, um about what time, the time frame there, and then uh kind of what happened in the immediate after aftermath of her being discovered?
0: What's strange about this case is the short time frame. Um it's pretty unheard of for someone to go missing, be found, be killed and found within two hour time frame is what we're talking about. She left at 1030. She was found at 1230. So it's a very tight time frame and she was found brutally murdered, almost 30 stab wounds. They can't define exactly what because there's it's at least 30 injuries to her body. Found yeah,
1: you, nude. you described in the episode that uh some of them may not have more scrapes than than stab wounds it, but she was so brutally it was just so so brutal that you almost lose count of the the number of injuries that she had it was it was quite horrific and you as you were it's getting very ready to say, as you were getting ready to say she was found nude also um was there any evidence of uh sexual assault or anything like that
0: so at the time they did a uh, test for sexual assault and it came back inconclusive. They don't believe that she had been raped. Um, it's of the opinion that no matter what, what happened uh, was because someone was trying to rape her. She has a lot of self-defense wounds, um, including she broke her fingernails and, and um, you know different, different details that made it very clear that she put up quite a bit of a fight. So it's believed that whoever this was was trying to rape her. She tried to fight back. That is kind of why it escalated to the 20 to 30 stab wounds.
1: You didn't really talk about this too much in your episode, but that the kind of, I mean, just playing psychology on a podcast here, we're not experts here, but you know, you hear about when, when there's a murder like this, it almost seems like it's personal, um, You know with this with a a stabbing rather than a shooting um kind of thing but
0: it's entirely possible that with um it being a knife attack if they were trying to potentially rape her and this is all hearsay i have no idea um but it is understandable that maybe their intention was not to actually attack her um And so that would be why it was a knife attack. Um, But yeah, when you hear 20 to 30 stab wounds, you think that sounds, sounds personal.
1: Anyway, that's, that's just kind of conjecture on our part, uh, particularly mine for, for bringing that up. But um, can you, can you uh, mention uh, who found her?
0: Yes. Um, She was found by off duty officer, Richard McCall and his brother. Um, They were driving around uh, country cruising uh, on the 4th of July and came across the body, went to the police and they came back to the scene and the police took over from there.
1: Okay. So it's an off-duty police officer from Chaffee McCall, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: Okay. Now you'd also mentioned in your uh, episodes that one of the reasons we have a tight timeline is because people were, um, kind of near the scene. They saw some traffic go by. Can you, can you describe that a little bit?
0: Yes um, so there are a lot of details in our episodes that people probably haven't heard at this point um, because we've been able to do this this deeper dive So a lot of this stuff may be brand new to some people but yes, there was a couple on the road um, that night as well as witnesses in the one home that is on that road um, and that kind of led to this this tighter timeline of they, we believe saw the murder vehicle mm-hmm. um, before Richard and his brother came to the scene. Yeah. So that adds this this layer to to it of complications. Yeah. Because of contradicting statements and and what was done at the time was, I think that we're all in agreement that what was done at the time was maybe not the best choice um, for the case Um, in like interviewing. They did a lot of um, polygraphs. Their, their tactic was to just like polygraph most people. Um, And then if they passed a polygraph, that was it. That was written off.
1: Um, mm -hmm. I've seen some of that too. I think, uh, you know, back in the eighties and even into the nineties in the case, you know, of the lawless case, I think um, oftentimes uh, the polygraph was used. It was trusted more than it is now, of course, yeah, and, and and frankly, kind of misused to eliminate people or to list them as suspects and so forth. yeah I um, think
0: it's like with technology growing, now we know more about polygraphs and and the complications of of human lie detecting. um and so back then it was kind of like black and white. Like this is, this is a tool that makes this entire case. Um, And now we look back and say, well, you know, there's other things that can complicate that.
1: Miss opportunities also, you know, and, and let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, The sheriff at the time was Gribbler, correct? Yes. We talked a little bit, earlier about how the major case squad was not activated, but at the same time in kind of defensive of that there were multiple jurisdictions working on this, uh, on mm-hmm. this case, but Gribbler was confident that he was, that they were going to solve this fairly quickly. And so that kind of ties in with, with what you were just talking about. Like it didn't get done that quickly. They didn't do the, the major case squad. So for those who don't know what the major case squad, it's kind of a unit that was, uh, formed through bylaws and so forth that would um, pull resources in from nearby jurisdictions to kind of put all of their heads together on a detective sense and really hone in on that. But in this case, the major case squad was not called. But Gribbler really thought that he was that he could solve it, especially with the other jurisdictions uh, participating as well. Why do you feel like Gribbler was confident? And secondly, what specific things did he do or not do that might have resulted in a better outcome?
0: That's a great question. Um, so this is all speculation on my part because uh, Bob Gribbler has passed on. Um, and so unfortunately we couldn't talk to him and get his actual thoughts on this. Um, So all we can do is is speculate based on what we have gathered. And based on our interactions, it sounds like it was just an ego issue. Unfortunately, Um, it seems that he saw it as an opportunity to solve a murder, have that kind of like under his belt because he did make a statement at the time that we'll have this solved in 24 hours Mm -hmm. to the public, to the media. Um, Of course that didn't happen. Now we're almost 40 years later. And we look back and say, why would you say that? He, he felt that they had really strong suspects and that he could get it solved in 24 hours. Based on what I know, it sounds like he, the family members have told me that he has actually come to them before he had passed and apologized and said that it was kind of he he was young and he wanted to prove himself and you know he made this public statement and that he was sorry. That is kind of what we understand of the case and and why that was handled the way it was, even at the time. It was pretty controversial. There was a lot of um, articles out in the Southeast Missourian about this, kind of questioning what he his choices, why it wasn't being handed to major crimes, why he was saying it should be solved in twenty four, it will be solved in twenty four hours. Um, I think he was in a lawsuit at the time. I think he had just fired his chief deputy. I'm not totally sure. About a week after this case. There was a lot going on. Um, so even then he was kind of questioned pretty heavily as to why he did the things that he did. Unfortunately, you can only activate the major crimes unit within, I think it, it's like the first 48 hours. Um, and so, yeah. of course, when it, two days it's, later, it's, he can't do it. So it's, it
1: really is a shame. One of the things about your documentary, by the way, it's the, the photography and the and the sound and everything was just so great. It's just like, wow. I mean, you're awful young to be putting out something this, um, good. I mean, the quality is just amazing. So, um, I definitely want our listeners to know that this is, this isn't just, you know, someone going around with a, with an iPhone. I mean, this is, this is really professional work. And one of the amazing things about it, not from a video production standpoint but from a journalism standpoint is that you were able to kind of find new information and through that information um, make connections with the current detectives at Cape Girardeau County and sit in with them and participate in kind of this round robin kind of uh, meeting where you go through all the evidence again like how for you, like, how did that come about? And how amazing was that as, as a journalist and as a filmmaker to be able to have that experience?
0: Um, it was undescribable, really. I mean, my team is is amazing. It's That's the reason that this is the way it is. Um, and part of that includes kind of my, I would say, my tenacity mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to kind of hone in on things and Oh, I'm sh- I'm sure I've been quite annoying <laughs> to the the police department. Uh, but... If
1: you're if you're not, you're not trying hard <laughs> enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, luckily, like specifically, Chief Deputy uh, Eric Frederick has been like the most adamant to to kind of letting us in um, and and working together, um, which we weren't really expecting, you know. With our, our experience, um, all of us are filmmakers. Like, this is our side project. This is our, our little, like, side project baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm a producer for a TV show up here. And so, like, coming into these communities, you, you know you have to, like, work a little harder because you're not there. We were very, we were expecting them to just be like, who are these people, you know? these documentarians coming in and, and doing this, but it wasn't really like that with Frederick, Frederick really. After we interviewed him, sat down with him. We asked some questions that I don't think he was expecting. Um, We asked some things that he was kind of like, I'm not sure how, you know, that (laughs) we may have some issues here. Yeah. Um, And instead of just being like, you know, it's 40 years old, let them do their thing. It'll pass. He was, he reached out to me back in May, I believe, and did something I was not expecting at all. He, he called and said, look, I know you have information that, that could be useful and could get answers. If you share that with us, you can come down for one week, five days and have access to eight detectives and they can go and follow any lead that you bring forward and we'll only pay attention to this case for that those five days which is pretty unheard of for a case that's almost 40 years old
1: that, um, that's amazing that, that's yeah. amazing like i you know like
0: have, well, yeah, you know they gave us full in trade they gave us full access to the police files so that i could continue yeah. you know
1: that's i mean it. that's a journalist dream right there you know to have that kind of access but then again like you know i would commend them for doing that it has been 40 years almost
0: yeah you i know, think what do, know, what do you
1: have to lose at this
0: point that's exactly what the mentality is kind of like it's an open case it's always been open and nothing new has come in about this case yeah this particular case nothing has come in and so he knew that this was an opportunity to actually like grab and and go with even if it's unorthodox. Um and that was and, uh, greatly appreciated.
1: David James even came out of retirement to to join in on the conversations. Uh I thought I thought especially um Eric Frederick and and I've met him a time or two. I I don't have like a I know, you know, a long history with him or anything, but I thought he came off as very sincere and genuine um in his interviews. Um even to the point of saying, yeah, that's not, you know, I mean, he's talking about his jurisdiction, even though he wasn't part of it back then, but acknowledging that yeah, we should have done these some of these things different, or you know.
0: Yeah, there's definitely had to a lot back. of acknowledgement, which we yeah. weren't expecting kind of coming in. We do cases and and people kind of, I would say underestimate what we are able to bring to the table. And we were anticipating that with this and did not get that. Um, Frederick was, he put aside a lot of, a lot of that, that ego and was just like, let's meet in the middle, come, come down for a week. You can present everything you found and we'll follow every lead. We'll start over. We're going to re-interview everybody. We're going to like start from scratch basically.
1: Uh, That's Um, amazing. Did they, um, were they able to use some of your leads? Do you think, or have they talked about that or?
0: Um, I think they were, um, I, when I came down the first day, um, I had no idea what to expect. I just brought all of my, my notes and my interviews and was kind of just like rolling with the punches. Mm -hmm. Um, and that first day, They brought in the eight detectives and they were all sitting there and kind of staring at me. (laughs) And then um, Frederick was like, okay, can you break down the case? Because you know this more. And that was such a strange experience because obviously it's a 40-year-old cold case. These detectives now aren't as, they can't be familiar with every cold case and what's going on. They have current cases that they need to worry about. So none of them had really, they knew like very brief details, but none of
1: them really knew. And so, you know, like this is a time for me to kind of defend what it is that we do and in this kind of genre that we're in this true crime, we get poked fun at. I mean, I've been, I've been doing journalism for, you know, 25 plus years, almost all of that in print. I've just recently got into the podcasting, but there's all sorts of people that poke fun you know, kind of at, you know, the keyboard detectives or whatever.
0: Internet sleuths. <laughs> yeah, right,
1: right. You know, but it's it's kind of the stuff that we're doing that really gives the fresh eyes, you know, and can, and can spend time on it that maybe they can't. At-
0: exactly. It's something that we should be working together on rather than kind of like constantly poking fun at, one another because I understand that the police department has to work on current cases. It's more likely that they're going to solve those. And if they let those go, those are going to end up being a bunch of cold cases that families don't get answers to. So I understand that like, they don't have a year and a half to work on one case. That's what we have been doing. And so like it's this kind of equal relationship if they if the police let it be, to say like, look, we can't do that. If she brings all of her information that she's looked at for a year and a half, then we can do our thing for five days and interview everybody and get get further in this. And with this particular case, because of kind of how it was handled in the 80s, a lot of things weren't kept on file. So even if nothing were to come of this, even if they didn't follow any of my leads, I, I knew I had to do it because at the very least it could get on file. Like right now there's, it felt like I kept bringing things up and they, they didn't know what I was talking about. Oh my. And you'd be like, and I read the police files and they were so brief. That yeah. They didn't really go into description about what was said to these people, how the interviews went. And so mm-hmm. to get that all on file, to get that, like okay well why was this person eliminated because of this 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 instead of just saying we decided that he was not
1: it it, it, regardless of what happens the investigation will have been advanced due to this um meeting of the minds um
0: I hope so I
1: yeah I mean obviously you uh spent all this time with the detectives and that's really cool but you also spent a lot of time with the family members of Debbie Manning obviously some emotional interviews in there what were some kind of big picture takeaways? Obviously, they, they it seems like they're just like, they, they don't have any expectations that this is going to be solved, really. Um, can you just talk about kind of where the family's at right now?
0: Yes, um, I just saw the family uh, two days ago uh, because they came to the premiere. Um, and that was the most important part to us. The local whisper is not going to come in to cases that don't want us there. Um, I know with these cases, it can bring up a lot of trauma. Um, And for some people who lose that hope, who have lost, like this is never going to get solved. So why would I put myself through this year after year? That was kind of the back and forth difficulty for them because they weren't really sure whether to trust us or if they wanted to go through all of this again. And we completely understood that and kind of just rode that wave and, and followed whatever they wanted to do. And can,
1: you, can you tell us who who all you talked to uh, on camera?
0: On camera, we talked to um, Deborah's daughter Amanda Manning. Um, we talked to Deborah's sister and brother Barb Johnson and Tommy Gaddis. Um, we talked to two of the detectives, Eric Frederick and David James, retired detective, um, and then. Through phone calls, we did her one of her best friends, Carla Ward, and her other son, Brandon Manning.
1: If you watch the episodes, you know, you kind of get into uh the the suspects and, and, and all of that. And I'll just refer my audience, you know, if you want to know about that stuff to to go see the episodes. Um, I would just ask, kind of in a more general sense, how close do you think we are or or the police are to being able to nail down the suspect and potentially uh, get charges?
0: For me, it's hard to say. I would say that we've brought forward a strong potential um, and they agree that it's a strong potential suspect. Um, Unfortunately, the fact that it's been 40 years complicates things. Um, so we need a fair amount of evidence to prove that and get a warrant um, in that degree, which is why DNA was re-submitted in 2022 following our investigation, um, because we were hoping that that DNA will link up to specific people or completely rule them out. And those those people can be eliminated um, officially because, at this point, no one has been truly eliminated, eliminated through DNA. So, you know, we're, we're hopeful that that will at least give some answers.
1: You put out two episodes here, at least for me to, to watch. Are, are you ready to release more? Are there going to be more? Are you going to keep following this? Or, um, you know, kind of what can we look forward to uh, in terms of your work in this case?
0: Yeah. Um, So to answer that, kind of like explaining what the local whisper is. Mm -hmm. um, The local whisper is an intention to go into cases that were not covered by the media very much and give a fresh look and an opportunity for families and friends to speak on the victims. Um, Each episode is about the victims, not the killer. Um, That's a very important element for us because we feel that true crime has really gotten pretty sensationalized almost like glorifying murder and that's not to say like to call out any other true crime series or anything like that but we wanted something that was a little more focused in on the victim with this particular case with the deborah manna case the first episode is kind of about deborah it starts off as that and then an overview of the case and the second episode does delve into you know potential suspects because we were able to uncover information And, you know, if there's a potential that we could help further the case, we will always try, but it's a case by case basis. So we want to make sure people know that because we worked with the police on this case, it does not mean we're going to work with the police on the next case. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We will do what we believe is, is best for the victim um, and their family and their friends. And if that means working with the police to get answers and potentially get a suspect, then we will do that or try to do that. But that is, we don't want that to be the expectation that. Yeah.
1: I guess I was, what I was thinking is I I kind of feel like, and I don't have anything to judge us on. We didn't really talk about this at all, but I kind of feel like, well, I, I just know it from my own perspective. Like you have more information than when you're, what you're able to publish. And so I'm kind of, just wondering if you're hanging on to some stuff and uh, later on, if there's charges that you'll release, release more.
0: We would love to, Um, like you said, the local whisper is, it's a pretty highly produced show. It's very expensive. And we all do this on our free time. We all have full-time jobs on our own shows. And so it requires a certain level of production value um, that we would like to maintain But obviously, that's going to cost more money. So we would be happy to release more information. It may be through a different platform if that is the case. If, you know, things start moving and things start coming out about the DNA or about people who have been interviewed or whatever, um, we may hop on a podcast and just kind of talk through what was left out of the documentary. Because we have, I mean, (laughs) yeah. People need to know that like a documentary or docu-series, there's about, if you're 100% of your footage, you use about about 25%. Yeah. Um, especially with us going down for five whole days to work with the police department, we have hours and hours of footage that didn't make it into the docu-series because we are pretty particular with journalistic integrity and making sure we don't post anything that could make things worse for the case. That's never our intention. And so we don't want to put out something that we don't know for a fact is, is like, not even a fact, but as far as we understand, it is something that we are able to prove. It is something that, you know, this person said this and this person said this, and here's our, our follow to that. If there are things that kind of come out as time is, is going on and we have things that might back that we would be happy to release it. Um, but at this point we don't want to like point fingers at anyone or makes like, make situations worse when we don't have the backing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I get that. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) You have to be
0: very careful. It's, it's not something like we're, we are very, very careful about what we put out and what, um, we keep to ourselves, not because we want to hide anything, but because you're talking about people's lives, you know, especially it being 40 years later, the person who likely did this could be passed on or they're 60 or 70 years old. Um, And you really wanna make sure you have done the best you can to get the right information and try not to be biased in any way Um, because it would be terrible to point fingers at someone who isn't alive anymore and can't defend themselves, or is, you know, 70 years old, retired, and (laughs) trying to just stay under the radar. It's, It's something that just requires a lot of care, and we've been very much trying to maintain that care throughout the local whisper.
1: All right. So uh, Reagan, what um, can you talk about any other cases that, that you're working on? Um, I, I'm guessing nothing you kind of mentioned earlier, you want to start in Cape Girardeau. I, I'm assuming that you've got some other, other projects in the works that probably aren't from around here, but I'm still interested in what your plans are next.
0: Yes. So we plan to release the first episode of the local whisper comes out October 21st. And then the second episode comes out November uh, 4th. After that, we kind of want to see the public reaction and whether or not, you know, people want more. We, our team loves this project and would love to do more, but it's a very expensive project. So um, we have ones that are kind of on the back burner in our minds, cases, and we would, we want to leave the Missouri area, try different cases all over because there are so many cases that have not been given the proper attention. So got Probably about ten cases in our our backlog that we're we're looking at.
1: It becomes a little overwhelming, doesn't it? Like when people start reaching out to you, I, I yes, <laughs> like you know, me doing the lawless case, I I didn't know really what what I was going to do after that, and just people are coming forward and saying, "Hey, can you please look into mine? Can you please?" You're going to get a lot of that, and it's it's really um, it's really hard. In fact, when I was doing the lawless case. Um, I, too, met Justin and and I learned that he was looking at some other cases. So I didn't want to really, you know, jump on what he but the Manning case, you know, there, there's there's a lot even here in the Scott County area, you know, Cape Girardeau area. You just can't do it all. Like once you do that deep dive, it's like you can't it, it's just really hard to juggle um, more than one at a, at a time.
0: Yeah, there are people who have reached out about um, either Scott County cases or Cape Dorado County cases. Um, And while we would love to work on a lot of cases, um, I think this is where the local whisper can differ from like something like Crime Talk Radio. They both serve different purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, Justin serves this purpose of trying to get a wide range of cases viewed and that is, that's needed. For us, we spend a year and a half on one case. We don't have the, the capability. It's more picking certain cases and giving it all of our energy and all of our time and all of our effort. Um, and so we can't do 10 different cases. Um, otherwise we would be
1: yeah and I, I just wanted to to plug Justin in Crime Talk Radio a bit. You, you you know you mentioned that and we both know Justin and and again he has this podcast uh, Crime Talk Radio and he works really hard on the cases that he does um put out there. Um he's he's got he, his heart is in it. It's just his he he does a different thing than what you know what you do certainly what I did with the with at least the first season. Um yeah. the the issue just from a, sustainability standpoint is, um, you know, it take, you know, it took me four, four years to fully investigate the law. You know, you you don't want to just do something every four years, you know? So, you you know, I've kind of been looking at cases in in the Fredericktown Madison County area. Um, it's wild and crazy, uh, wild West over there, but, uh, (laughs) so I'm kind of a hybrid, you know, but, uh, but this work is really hard, and and this would be a good opportunity too to kind of talk a little bit more about your work, um, the the image the imagery for for the case. Kind of what was your thought process going in? It just it was really cool to kind of see like these images of the research. Uh, I, th- I found that really cool. But uh, when you're when you're looking at a case like this, you got to figure out B roll because there's not a lot of images of the stuff that you're talking about. Obviously you're going to have faces of people you're interviewing, but, um, but just, yeah, just kind of talk about as you're strategizing and how to figure out how to visualize this thing, where do you start from and, and uh, talk about the execution of it and your team.
0: That is you're hitting it right on the nail. There's a lot. <laughs> I want to say like all of it. Um, I know that the visual side of things is uh you know, obviously we want attention to the case and that, um, needs to be backed up by, by visuals that represent it. And this is a 40 year old cold case. We don't have many photos. We don't have, obviously we don't have video of, of anything that took place or anything like that. Um, and so we have to supplement all of this and think through our B-roll and I have to speak very highly about my team because, would not be possible without my team. Um, And that would be kind of the core team was Ivana Malia is my um, executive producer. Uh, Joe Willenbrink and Taylor Bevert are my two DPs, directors of photography. Um, Without that core team, the four of us, it could not have been possible. Having two directors of photography in particular was important to this because it took a lot of thought. (laughs) Um, A lot of I mean, people don't realize when we came together for the local whisper before we even talked about Deborah Manning, we had meetings on meetings of the look and the feel and what we wanted. And we were very particular about kind of what we were looking for. And, you know, we've said it before, but if anyone has seen the movie Spotlight, um, it's done on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love Spotlight. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of brought that to to taylor and joe and was like this is what i want because we all three loved that film and how it was done um it really showcased the research side of things yeah. which to a lot of people that can be the most boring side of things yeah but as you and i know that's 90 percent of <laughs> what yeah. you do yeah and so um we wanted to make it very research heavy and it can be hard to do that without, with keeping it interesting.
1: Um, well, I, and I thought, um, again, like I'm not any, I'm not a film expert. That's not my background. Um, but as someone who's watched a fair amount of documentaries and stuff, I, I just thought the imagery along with the music just really had like a, a very methodical feel to it, like a very serious, um, you know, this isn't this isn't car chases and explosions. This is very methodical. It's very serious. We're taking you through this journey and we're being respectful with the information and with the families that all comes across, not just in in the, the what you're saying and presenting, but also through the music and the, uh, the images. So if that was your goal, it's uh, very well accomplished.
0: As the, the editor also on this project, um, it, it's been followed through from. Beginning to end, everything has been has been thought through. Music was chosen before, uh, in pre-production, we chose music before we filmed anything. Um, so we've kind of created this identity um, and this brand. It I think allows us to do cases like this because we've got kind of um, one of our the family members, Amanda Manning, watched it and said, "I lo- what I loved about the first one is." how it kind of felt like a dream. Like we didn't mimic anything. We weren't doing like shot for shot, kind of imitating what happened um, because we felt that that was kind of dramatizing it and not making it real. Um, Instead we included a lot of imagery of this empty road and this quiet town and this like, these little detail shots a sign the or... drone
1: footage was very helpful yes. um and and you know some of the where you put the 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 text overlaid where, where places were um was really good uh visual storytelling as well just to help the the viewer understand kind of where things are so um very well done you know you, you had mentioned kind of before um the truth the nature of true crime and I just did a, a podcast where I kind of got into that, got on a soapbox a little bit. Um, so you know, I feel like I owe it to my my audience to only recommend those things that do uh, take victims seriously that do take this work very seriously and I highly recommend um, anyone um, uh, to check out uh, the work that you've done. So can you share with us how they can find it once again and how they can help and uh, share and, uh, you know get the word out for you as well?
0: Yeah. If, if this is something that people are interested in, we truly can't express how important it is to go to our social media. We are at the local whisper on everything. Um, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, follow us all of the, in the, all those places, share our posts, like things. It, it means the world to us. Um, we manage it ourselves um, every day. We, we check and, and see every every comment we comment back and it's it allows us to continue this so if it's something that you particularly are like wow that's a cool thing the more you involve in our social media the more we can actually do this um, to continue doing more cases just go to the local whisper google it and get onto any of our social media um
1: it'll be be on youtube when uh what what day again
0: Uh, episode one will release Friday, this Friday, October 21st. Um, and then the second episode will release, uh, November 4th. Okay. Um, so two Fridays after that.
1: All right. So, um, as an independent creator myself, I I know so much of this is done just out of pure passion. Uh, you know, you just, you want to use your talents in, in such a way that, that helps these cases. So I would encourage everybody out there to go um, support another independent creator who's put herself out on the line and, and done all of this work. Go support her and uh, uh, let's blow this thing up so uh, the world can be um, familiar with the local Whisperer. So um, Reagan, is there anything else that you want to say?
0: Just thank you. It's um, it's really nice that kind of like everyone who has reached out in the Cape Girard area, you, Justin, to it feels like a really tight-knit community and i've always been like welcomed in with open arms within kind of the the people who have worked on this case or have worked on other cases in this area and we really appreciate it when i called you yeah. back when we were in pre-production um you were so helpful and honest and and
1: well, provided. I'm willing. To, I'm willing to talk about public records requests to anybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was like, I gotta talk to the vital bureau, <laughs> the bureau of vital records. I was yeah. so determined because there's a grand jury file, and I was like, how do I get a hold yeah. of this?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, good luck with that. That's yeah, a, that's a tough. That's a tough lock to crack, right there. So
0: absolutely, <laughs> and yeah. so it's just it's been um, a very positive experience to see people come together in this way a lot of people could be very closed off from other people kind of coming in and we have really haven't experienced that with this case and with this town this area um and we really appreciate it you know letting us
1: all right well um it's our pleasure to uh to try to lift you up if we can and um you know keep doing great work good luck with you and this project and your professional work in wisconsin all that stuff and and let your team know uh we said hello and good luck to all you guys. I hope I hope this is something that that blows up, and you guys can continue this work for as long as you want to.
0: Thank you. I we're all Lawless Files fans, so I hope <laughs> I hope this continues, and uh, we see more on on your side of things. But
1: okay. all right, well, thanks a lot, Reagan. Uh, good luck to you. Have a great week.
0: All right, you too. Bye.
1: All right, bye. Thank you for listening to the Lawless Files. I'm your host, Bob Miller. If you'd like to support The Lawless Files and the work we do here, please go to www.thelawlessfiles.com and sign up for a guest access pass. For $36, you get one year of access to ad-free listening, occasional early bird episode listening, and extra bonus materials. For example, just last week we put out a blog about results from the Sunshine Law request that we issued to Madison County. So, you can get things like that uh, with your access pass. Again, that's www.thelawlessfiles.com. The Lawless Files is a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. Music by Tyler Grafe.